angry, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I was quoting from a lead character from a TV show back in the 1970s. How many remember the, the person who said that? His name was David Banner, played by Bill Bixby. And if somebody did make that person angry, there was an incredible transformation that took place. David Banner would suddenly grow so large that his clothes would just be destroyed. All except his pants around his waist. Thank the Lord for that. His skin would stretch and turn green. And he would have the muscles indicative of a superhuman strength. It was the Incredible Hulk, played by Lou Ferrigno, who was a world-class bodybuilder. Um, now, in that case, he always used his anger to do something good. Anger very rarely does something good. Well, none of us seen an angry person turn green and end up with the body of a weightlifter, most of us know somebody who goes from meek and mild to angry and rage in a matter of seconds. It might even be you. Or maybe when you got married, you thought it was a David Banner person, but a short time later, the Hulk showed up. Some of you thought your boss was a David Banner person but the Hulk turned your work world upside down. Some of you mothers swore that you had a David Banner baby. And a couple months later, you recognized you had a little monster that bears his name. There are some godly church members in other churches who look good when they're in church but catch him at the wrong time in the wrong place, and the Hulk comes out. We've been in Genesis now for a little while, except for the break that I had to take. But last week we finished up chapter three, where, chapter four today. In the lesson text this morning, we are gonna see a whole bunch of first. We're gonna see the first baby born. We're gonna see the first recorded worship service. Uh, we're gonna, See the first recorded worshiper offer an acceptable sacrifice to God. We're going to see the first display of jealousy. We'll see the first display of human anger. We'll see the first human being die of physical death. We will see the first murder. Now that's a whole lot of first things to cover in one morning, isn't it? I might not make it. I remind you as we ended chapter 3. Adam and Eve being driven out of the Garden of Eden. Hard work was now the curse that was laid upon Adam. He would have to work the ground by the sweat of his brow in order to have food for sustenance. And so when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, now Adam knew his wife. That means they had sexual relations. 
And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The first pregnancy, the first live birth of a human child. Have you ever stopped to consider the wonder that Adam and Eve would have gone through during the course of that first pregnancy? There were no books, no doctors, no other mothers to tell her what's going to happen. The changes in her body, the changes in her hormones, morning sickness, strange and powerful cravings, (laughs) and then the first movement of that child within her womb. that body stretching and misshapen. And she goes from walking to waddling. And then the birth, the pain. Oh, the pain, the pain. No epidural, no Lamaze breathing technique. None of that had been the pain. Just as God had said her lot would be. So when the child was born, she named him Cain. It's a name that's associated with the Hebrew word acquired. Acquired. She said, I've gotten a man, or an ish, with the help of the Lord. May I suggest in the birth of her first son, Eve declares her renewed dependence upon the Lord. When she named him Cain, I've given birth to a man, an ish, with the help of the Lord. Remember, (coughs) excuse me, when the Satan, when the serpent tempted her to disobey God, to disobey that one command, what did he say? (coughs) If you eat of this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be just like God. Now that they're outside the garden, their relationship with God is far different than it was in the garden. In the garden, they walked with him. They dwelt with him. They lived with him. (coughs) Excuse me. Outside the garden, when they've been driven from his presence, now she understands she needs the Lord. She needs Yahweh. She needed the creator of everything. And while this boy came from her body, her declaration was, this is the creation of God. This is the work of God. All through the Bible, we read that children are a gift from the Lord. Mathematically, Mathematically, every one of us who's living and breathing today is a miracle. We won't get into the biology of all of that in the message this morning, but it's a miracle. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Some Bible scholars think, thank you. Thank you very much. And they thank you. 
some Bibles thought by naming this child Cain, they're thinking this is the one. Remember, God made a promise. Your, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And, and they're believing the deliverer has been born. The promised one has arrived. Oh, were they mistaken. Verse 2, and again she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. She called this name Abel. The Hebrew word that can be interpreted breath or void or vanity. It's the same word that Solomon used in Ecclesiastes when he said everything is meaningless. We're not told why she called him breath. I'm wondering if it's because that second pregnancy happened so quickly after the first one that, oh man, here's this. But she didn't know, but prophetically, she was talking about the brevity of his life when she named him Abel, like a vapor. In the next verse, verse 3, we have the first recorded worship service. The first recorded worship service. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought to, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, obviously, there's a long gap between verse 2 and verse 3. The boys have grown up. They're now men. We know nothing about their growing up other than the fact that Cain followed in the footsteps of Adam and became a person who farmed agriculturally. Abel became a farmer of sheep, a sheep farmer. So they had different vocations. We can only surmise that Adam had taught them the importance of offering sacrifices to God in order to keep the communication line between them and God open. Even though they did not live in the, in the garden with them, they had come to understand that God still heard them. God was still around. And God had not forsaken them, even though he had put them out of the garden so they would not eat of the tree of life and live in their unredeemed state forever and ever. There was a huge crisis that took place because of what happened in that worship service. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Abel got a pat on the back from God. Good job. Cain did not receive affirmation for the gift that he had brought. Why? What was the difference? Why did God reject the offering that Cain had brought? Some people's first response is because it was not an animal, it was not a blood sacrifice. But as you read through the rest of Scripture, God, when he gave the law to Moses and Leviticus, Exodus, 
He commanded them to bring the grain offerings. He commanded them to bring the first fruits of their crops as an offering to God. So it's not a matter of the substance of the offering. The clue lies in what we read in verses 3 and 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The ribeye states. Abel brought what we would call the tithe. When, when the rabbis read this, the Jewish rabbis read this, and they taught about it, and they looked at the firstborn, the portion, fat portion of the firstborn, Abel brought the best of the flock. Abel brought the best of the flock. It does not say that Cain brought the first fruits or the best fruits. He just brought some fruit. Maybe the fruit that had fallen on the ground, bruised. Maybe the fruit that was overripe, not good to eat. Maybe the fruit that was still green. Whatever it was. Maybe he was like the guy and then Jesus talked about in the parable. His storehouse was full for the winter. I have some left over. I know what I'll do. I'll give it to God. The leftovers. It was a matter of the heart. It was a matter of the heart. The difference was his attitude. Cain came to God on Cain's own self-prescribed terms. Let me run that by you one more time. Cain came to God on Cain's own self-prescribed terms. But Abel came to God on God's terms. Cain's spirit was arrogant, as the subsequent story will reveal to us. We go on in this. The writer of Hebrews provides further insight into the brothers' hearts, indicating that Abel's offering, well, look at it, Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, he died, and he still speaks. He gave his offering in faith. It does not appear that Cain's offering was an offering of faith. He presumed to define what his sacrifice would be. You see, Cain was the captain of his own heart. Cain was the captain of his own heart. God, you take me and my offering the way it is. Here's what you get, this much and no more. Cain's attitude was what the latter prophets, such as Micah, would rail against. In Micah 6, verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oils, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8, he's told you, O man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Where Cain missed it is right there. He did not walk humbly with God. And he missed the favor of God. Cain had a pride issue. He had a pride issue. His offering did not come from a heart that wanted to act justly and love mercy or to walk humbly with God. His offering was more about Cain than anything or anyone else. Cain's pride led him to the comparison trap. Cain's pride led him to the comparison trap. Verse 6 said he was very angry. His face was downcast. The comparison trap. Why did you give Abel something? Why did you give my little brother something? I'm just as good as him. I'm even better than him. How? Why? Who was Cain angry with? You say, well, stupid question, but I want, you to, I want you to catch this. Who's he really angry at? He's really angry at God. But who did he take it out on? How often we do the same thing. Angry at God. And since we can't take him on, have you tried taking on God? We take it out on somebody next to us. He was very angry, and his countenance changed. His face made it known. Anger has a way of taking over your whole being. You might think you're hiding it. But whatever's boiling inside manifests itself out, outwardly. God came to Cain. Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. You must master it. God was confronting Cain about his attitude. God was confronting about his attitude. God comes and speaks to him, letting him know you've just flunked worship because you did it, not with a heart for God. It came from a heart wanting to manipulate God. Now listen really closely. God wanted the privilege of changing Cain through worship. God loves us as we are. Come as you are, you'll be loved. God loves you as you are. But you know what? God loves you enough that he's not going to leave you like you are. Cain had a choice. He can listen to God, learn, change, and grow. Or he can throw a pity party and stay in his anger. He chose the pity party. Here's an important 
application lesson right here. God's plan is to make life a long, hard, delightful, exhilarating journey of spiritual transformation. God's plan is to make life a long, hard, if somebody promised you an easy way if you became a Christian, they were overtaken by the same agent that spoke to the serpent. They lied to you. It'll be hard, but it'll be delightful. It'll be an exhilarating journey of spiritual transformation. What's God's purpose and plan for us? That we might, you know, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his firstborn son. I have not met too many new converts that were already just like Jesus. And there's only a few older saints that we could say they're just like Jesus. People all the time tell me my dad was just like Jesus. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but none of us were like Jesus yet. We are all in the process of being transformed. But Cain had, well, our nature's a whole lot like Cain. He didn't want to be changed. And the sad truth is, most of us don't want to be changed either. And the older we get, the more stubborn we get about that. Don't mess with me. This is the way I am. This is the way that God made me. No, God is in the process of making you, if you let him. One preacher said that sin, not doing what is faith, Sin is like a co cozy bed on a cold Saturday morning. You just want to stand under the covers and sleep a little longer. How do you respond to God when he starts messing with your life and pointing out issues of the heart? God came to Cain and said, if you do not well, well in fact, he said, if you do well, won't you receive the same affirmation that Abel did? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. That word crouching brings to mind the literal translation or would be of a lioness crouching, moving in for a kill. I'm pretty sure by this time in his life, Cain has seen that picture take place. Because when sin entered the world, now it became the survival of the fittest. For several days, my plan was to pull up a YouTube video of a lioness hunting prey. I watched about four of those yesterday. And I made the decision, Pastor Bob, that's probably not a wise video to show on a Sunday morning, especially when we're going to a picnic. <laughs> a little too graphic. On one of the videos, the last one I watched, 
seven and a almost eight minutes long. It starts out, and this this lioness is behind this huge bush, right next to an obvious game trail that you could drive a truck on. And it's crouched behind that, and you can see that it hears something coming. And a zebra comes running out in the camera. And within about 10 paces, I mean, they're both running. This lion is on top of that zebra, pulls it down. And then within two seconds, now there's a second lion. Three seconds. Now there's, in, in less than 10 seconds, there was at least six, if not seven, lions on this zebra. And they were all gnawing away. And the zebra was still alive, fighting for its life. It was a brutal. That's exactly what God was saying to Cain. If you don't deal with this, if you don't deal with this, sin is like that lion, and it will devour you unmercifully. And just in case you want to blame Satan for being hung up in a sin, look what James says. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God had come to Cain in grace. He stood at the crossroads of repentance or rebellion, the crossroads of submission or self-will. Verse 8 said this, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field where nobody could see them, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. While it was God who did not accept Cain's offering, Cain in his pride about who he was and what he could accomplish was very angry that Abel was obviously blessed with the favor of God. As we read in Hebrews 11.4, Abel offered a sacrifice to God in faith. That's what made his offering superior to Cain's. Abel's faith was in God and in good, the goodness of God. Cain's faith seems to be in Cain and the ability of Cain. You see, the comparison trap led to jealousy. It led to jealousy. Be careful about comparing yourselves to one another, Paul said. In fact, I think he said it's foolishness. It's foolishness. That jealousy led to anger, and it culminated in fratricide. Somebody says, what's fratricide? That's the murder of your sibling, the murder of your brother. If you read that context of the first part of chapter 4, at least six times Moses uses the word brother. Brother. His brother. This was not 
some outside force. It was not some enemy. Cain, in his anger, in his jealousy, laid hands on the only brother he had at that time that we know of. They most likely would have looked a whole lot alike. I mean, they come from the first two human beings. The DNA. But Cain looked past all of that, all of the family likeness. I don't know how he did it. We know he didn't shoot him. If he took whatever knife that Abel had used to offer the sacrifice with, he looked past that and he killed his brother, the first murder. Brother killing brother. I want to back up to verse 7 and talk about anger this morning. Anger is a God-given emotion. You can read numerous times in the Bible where God was angry, and God still gets angry. Anybody ever disobeyed God? And got a spiritual spanking? In his love, his righteous anger, well, anger that God gave us is a whole lot like the warning light in your dashboard. It tells you something's wrong. The good news is anger can be used for good. Anger can be the motivation to fix something that is wrong. It can be good. There can be a righteous indignation, a righteous anger. For example, in 1979, a young man named Marcus Brown, 18 years old, was killed by a drunk driver in the state of Florida on the highway. His mother, Bernice Brown, channeled her grief and her anger into action. She formed a local coalition of parents who had lost children to drunk driving. She began a, a campaign to increase awareness and prevention. That group became known as MADD, MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And over the years, that group has made a difference in the culture and the laws surrounding drunk driving. Who knows how many hundreds of lives have been saved because she was angry and she channeled it to do something right. Jesus gives us an example of righteous indignation and anger in Matthew chapter 21. He has just entered the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, and he goes into the, the temple um, area and seeing the money changers and the merchants doing their business in the temple courts, he began flipping tables over, driving them out of the temple. John tells us when he cleansed the temple, he even made a whip to snap and to make his point and declared in very clear terms, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer. And the very next verse is the verse that's on the screen. This shall be called the house of prayer. He cleansed the temple and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, 
and he healed them. Now the blind and the lame were not welcome in the temple according to Jewish law. But Jesus came and he got rid of all those people there making a profit and opened up a way for the blind and the lame. They could have sang in that place that day, God is here. Let the brokenhearted rejoice. God is here. Good things can come from righteous anger, from anger like God handles anger. However, you need to know what James says about anger. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick, slow, slow. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God came to Cain while he was struggling with his jealousy and anger. God came to let him know there was a way out of that temptation. Verse 6 and 7 again, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, desires for you, but you must rule over it. When Adam sinned in Chapter 3 of Genesis, what did he do? He hid. God came looking for him. And God started with a question. Adam, where are you? Did God not know where Adam was? He knew. The question was for Adam. And Adam confessed. Likewise, the Lord asked Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? God already knew the answer. God was giving Cain an opportunity to confess and repent. God was giving Cain an opportunity to confess and repent. He gave him the opportunity to say, you know what, God, I I'm angry. I'm jealous of my brother because you gave him blessing and you did not give me blessing. God, I'm really angry at you. I think I deserve everything that he got. God asked him another question. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Cain, you have a choice to make about what you do with your anger. You have a choice to make about what you do with your anger. Now in your notes, cross out that word Cain and put your own name there. When I was a kid, my dad would tell me something that just made my teeth grind. No one can make you angry. It's your choice. So even those times when you make me so angry, that's not true. They didn't make you angry. You made that choice. You made that choice. It's getting really quiet in here. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No temptation beyond your ability to say, I'm going to take God's way and not my way. God provides a way of escape. Come this way. Choice is ours. Ephesians 4.26 says this, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. In the old days of war, you're trying to overtake the enemy. You wanted to get a foothold on their property. Don't let the devil get a foothold in your heart. A place to set up to bring his troops, his demons to harass you. God said, Cain, sin desires to have you. You must master it. You must bring it under control. Because if you do not master it, it will master you. And that's basically what Paul is saying. Be angry. But don't sin. Keep it under control. How do you do that? How do I do what's right? How do I see the righteousness of God worked out instead of the righteousness of me? The antidote to sinful anger is prayer. The antidote to sinful anger is prayer. The number one way to deal with my anger is to give it to God in prayer. Unload it on Him. Now, this is probably not one of those really beautiful prayers. It could be a bit on the rough side. Not the kind of prayer you want to pray out loud on a Sunday morning in the presence of everybody. God came to say, hey, Cain, why are you angry? Why are you pouting? He could have been honest with God with his feelings and thought. He could have made a choice to repent of any desire to do harm to his brother or anyone else. He could have been like David, who centuries later, when an anger was crouching in his door, he wrote this song. Why, O oh Lord, Psalms 10, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. David looks around and he sees evil people doing evil things against innocent people, and he's upset. God, why don't you bring them into accountability? If you read the rest of the chapter, he continues to express his displeasure with the things that are going on and with the people who are doing them. He prays in verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evil man, call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. God let the psalmist pour out his heart. He let him declare his frustration. God can take it. 
I have no record that I can find where God broke the arm of one of his, David's enemies. I mean, it might have happened, but I have no record of it. What David did was he unloaded his anger. He let the Lord have it. And before he concluded his prayer, he gave up his right to get vengeance. He gave up his right to get even. Because we read in verse 16, 17, and 18, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry, defending the followers and the oppressed in order that man who is on earth may terrify no more. David spoke to the issue of his anger. He called it what it was, but he made a choice. The choice was to trust God to make things right in his way and his time. Don't ever forget what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay evil with evil. Leave room for God's wrath, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Psalm 16 ends with, all right, God, I put this situation, I put these people in your hands. I trust you to do the right thing. I think you ought to break their arms, but I'm just going to let you do what you want to do. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. To master anger, sometimes the proper action is to release it by forgiving whoever has wronged us. To master anger, sometimes the proper action is to release it by forgiving whoever has wronged us. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You read the NIV, it's letting you know that you make that choice to put these things away. Anger, clamor, slander, along with malice. And instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's Jesus' forgiveness for me that empowers me to lay down my unrighteous anger and set myself free by choosing to forgive, choosing to give up my right for vengeance, choosing to give up my right to get even or to get ahead. Jesus can give us the grace we need to do that when we make that decision. William Willimon wrote a book on the deadly sins called Sinning Like a Christian. In a book, he has a chapter on anger. He ended that chapter with the story of a woman from Belfast whose husband, a good man, had been murdered in cold blood right before her, right in front of her eyes, by revolutionaries trying to make a point. She was a woman who had every reason to be mad at God, mad at the world, mad at her husband's murderers. And yet, she was one of the most committed, compassionate Christ followers Willimon had ever met. 
He, said, he asked her, how were you able to overcome your anger? She said, well, I stood over his lifeless body, overwhelmed with grief, anger. The only thing I could do was pray. And the only prayer that would come out of my mouth was, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And she asked God right there, Lord, help me to do just that. Every single day, help me to do just that. And God did. Willimon wondered how a person could forgive such a thing until he remembered another good man murdered in cold blood by people trying to make a point. That man, while he was dying, his first words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. God's righteous anger was on display. I mean, what Jesus received was the wrath of God against sin. But as Jesus is receiving the wrath of God, the anger of God, as it were, in one dramatic moment, one decisive act, Father, forgive them. God came to Cain to warn him, if you do not master this anger, it's going to master you. We already know what happened. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where's your able brother? Or where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God came and gave Cain a second chance to confess and repent. Where's your brother? Adam, where are you? Cain, where's your brother? Cain did not confess. He lied. He did not confess. He lied. And how many human beings have followed that pattern? He compounded the consequences of his sin. My brother, haven't seen him. Wasn't my day to watch him. He asked the Lord, a rhetorical question, am I my brother's keeper? Trying to absolve himself of all responsibility, tried to elude the, am I my brother's keeper? God gave him a third chance to confess. Aren't you thankful that God is patient? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. I want you to know 
God's desire is to redeem fallen men and women. God's desire, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We sing, Jesus loves me. I couldn't run, I couldn't run from his presence. Thank God that he's overtaken us with his goodness and mercy. We often think that grace is a New Testament word. But 4,000 years before the word became flesh and dwelt among us, God comes to the first murderer and gives him opportunity to confess and repent to find grace and forgiveness. And Cain's has no answer except, am I my brother's keeper? I have no responsibility for him. I do not think it is an accident that Abel is always referred to as his brother. Not just his name, but his connection to Cain, his brother. One of the lies of the devil has to do with this kind of thinking. I'm not responsible for anyone but me. Heard a story of a young man who went to apply for a job at a, at a local theater in a mall. As part of the interviews process, the manager asked him, what would you do in case a fire breaks out? I said, don't worry about me. I'll get out just fine. As I read the rest of the Bible, I believe we find the answer to, God, to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? God's plan for humanity has always been people living in community, people helping people, people encouraging people. <coughs> I ran out of paper for your notes to make it in one page flops over, but I give you a whole list of verses to look at when you get home. Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You say that's Old Testament, Galatians 5.14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in the transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul, more than once in his letter to the different churches, teaches that we are individual members of the, of the body of Christ. And as its members, we need each other. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all of its members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We have responsibility to one another. We're to love one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. Hebrews 10:24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works 
not neglecting the meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we very seldom read the next verse. Verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You didn't know that one was connected, did you? And we could go on, but we're not going to. And my brother's keeper, yes, in the sense of being an encourager, in the sense of sharing burdens at times, and in the sense of praying for each other. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. To be their judge? No. Judge not lest you be judged, but to be an encourager, to share burdens at times, and to pray for each other. And everybody said? Oh, that was half of you. Everybody said? There we go. Welcome back. Never forget, when you begin to look at your brother and sister and want to criticize them, what Jesus said about, well, if you'll take the plank out of your eye first, then you can go remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's our privilege to do life together, to journey towards heaven together, to be the family of God and a chosen and royal nation. Beware of Satan's plot to isolate from the family. Beware of Satan's plot to isolate you from the family. Do you watch cats trying to get a deer or an elk? They look for the one that's isolated from the herd. Cain's story does not end well. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from you. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth. God offered Cain grace. Cain chose the curse. God offered Cain grace, but Cain chose the curse. People often say, how could a loving God send people to hell? It's a choice they made because God offered heaven to everyone. Cain allowed anger to control him. And because he allowed anger to control him, he made illogical decisions. The decision to focus his anger on Abel. Abel did nothing to Cain. Cain's anger had to be toward God because it was God who rejected the offering. It did not come from a heart that was right. The curse, the ground would no longer produce crops for Cain. That's how he made his living. That's how he found food. That's how he sustained life. And God said, your crops are not going to be very good. He was cursed to be a wanderer the rest of his days. 
We'll read on, and he went from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Nod means wandering. Listen, God's desire is to give each and every one of us a hope and a future. God designed a purpose for each one of our lives, but there's a choice to be made. In the face of temptations that come our way, we get to choose. In the last days of Moses, he gathered the Israelites together, gave them the exhortation about choices. By the time he gives them this message, they have been wandering for 40 years in the desert because at Kadesh Barnea, the people refused to believe God. So every one of them over the age of 20 died and was buried in the wilderness instead of the promised land. Now Moses stands before the people who were all under 20 when they came to Kadesh Barnea the first time. And he stands before them who've grown up and their children. And he makes this passionate plea in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. The last note, therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life. Choose God's way. 